Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. A country that we also love here at Securing America is the state of Israel. We talk about it a lot because, well, frankly, it's on the front line of the war in which we too are engaged, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. I would say it's the war for Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian elements thereof especially. And a man who is there on the front lines with his countrymen in the state of Israel, I'm very pleased to say, is a friend as well as a very valued contributor to this program. And we have caught up with him after several weeks of tracing him around the world, uh, notably in the United Kingdom and elsewhere, to talk with him about some very important insights that he and his team at Palestinian Media Watch have been producing that is directly relevant to the fight that Israel is in, yes, but fighting as well, as I say, for us. His name is Itamar Marcus. Uh, He is the founder and president of Palestinian, Palestinian Media Watch. You can find it at uh, palwatch.org. Welcome back, Itamar. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us once again. Thank you, Frank. Always great to talk with you. Thank you. Well, listen, uh, I wanted really to uh, speak to you with some urgency because I think a piece that uh, you have done that really exemplifies your work more generally in terms of trying to capture in their own words what the Palestinians are saying, what they are saying about what they're doing, importantly. Uh, It was an essay that you wrote about, um, I think you called it Terrorists in Uniform. And uh, I caught up with it about the time that you were speaking to the British uh, Parliament, I think, about it. Um, So we'll get to that in a moment. But first, talk a little bit about what you have well, really documented, not only about what's going on, but what the Palestinians themselves are saying, at least in Arabic, about it. Yeah. So uh, this is critical. Uh, It's critical for understanding what's happened over the last few years in terms of terror, uh, Judean Samaria terror. And it's also critical for making decisions about what should happen in the future, who should be ruling Gaza, who should be ruling and, and it's true, truly very much an American story as well, because it's about the Palestinian Authority Security Services, um, which is funded by the United States, uh, tens of millions of dollars a year, uh, and actually trained. There, there have been uh, Palestinian uh, Security Service people who went over to Jordan and their American army officers, uh, they called them under uh, uh, American officer named Dayton, uh, were training, were training uh, Palestinian police. So they got the latest in American uh, light weaponry, latest in American skills. They brought them back with them to do to Judea and Samaria. Uh, and what has it turned out? It turned out that they ended up being one of the major backbone of Palestinian Authority terror, uh, killing civilians, attacking civilians, organizing the people who weren't policemen. Uh, and then we did this report because uh, the, the United States recently has said that they want the Palestinian Authority and its security services to to rule to rule Gaza um, after Israel destroys Hamas. And that can't possibly be because we see that the, the police themselves are the ones who are leading terror. Now, as you said, it's not just that they're leading terror. The PA isn't hiding it. Fatah. The party of Mahmoud Abbas isn't hiding it. Um, terrorists are killed, and the Palestinian Authority creates posters. Fatah creates posters of them where they're in uniform, and they're bragging that the person who died as a so-called martyr was Captain so-and-so, Lieutenant so-and-so, Sergeant so-and-so, and they show pictures of them in uniform. And then we research, and we see that these are some of the leaders, literally the leaders of terror in, the, in Judea and Samaria. American-funded, American-trained, killing, killing Israelis, sometimes Americans as well, uh, and and this is who America wants to run. Yeah, you you touched on one other aspect of this, and I <clears> want to <throat> just drill down on it because I know it's a particular concern 
to those uh, described as settlers living in Judea and Samaria, the original homeland of the Jewish people, uh, settlers um, are warning that not only are these forces being trained and funded by the United States, but they are being armed. And what you've described as kind of light weaponry may be considerably more weaponry than the people in those communities, those Jewish communities in the so-called West Bank, um, have with which to defend themselves. And I've heard tell that, you know, there's a real concern that you could see at any given moment perpetrated, yes, by others, but some, including these personnel benefiting from American support, rampages that might make what happened on October 7th pale by comparison. Is that a concern you share? It's absolutely a concern. There are tens of thousands of, um, of Palestinian members of the security services uh, armed uh, by the United States, armed by uh, the Palestinian Authority, um, all trained. Uh, so many of them uh, have been involved in terror. Uh, the ones that we've caught, we have no idea how many others are directly or indirectly one way or the other involved in terror. And we have to understand why is this happening? It's happening because the Palestinian Authority leadership itself has never, ever condemned terror. They don't. To, to, to the contrary, what do they actually say? Yeah, yeah. They, they, to the United States, they say we're against terror. To their own people, terrorists go to jail and they immediately get on the Palestinian Authority payroll. They get salaries. They get high salaries. If they're in jail for murder and they're there for long enough, they'll be getting 300% of the average Palestinian salary. 300%. Oh. And, and by the way, those are Israeli jails. They're not being jailed by the Palestinian Authority, are they? Itamar, one of the other data points that I was stunned by in your report, because as you know, um, President Biden issued an executive order sanctioning four settlers for violence against the Palestinians. And, and your report indicates that in Fatah's own, you know, boasting, there have been 1,500 attacks or military operations, I think you call them, um, against uh, these settlers by both Fatah and these security forces. Have I got that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, the, and we're talking about a much higher scale. Um, uh, I don't know the particular stories I've asked about it, trying to find out what did these four people actually do. And apparently... They were actually defending themselves uh, from being attacked. I think there were shepherds, some of them, and they, their, 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 their sheep and their goats were being stolen uh, regularly. They went to get them back, and when they tried to get them back, they were attacked, uh, and they had to defend themselves. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, it's crazy that, that, look, I understand that what Biden did has much less to do with the guilt of these four people and much more to do with his having lost um, a good part of the Arab American vote. Uh, he, his highest- Particularly priority... the primary state of Michigan, which is going exactly. to be casting ballots shortly. Exactly, exactly. And uh, he had to, he felt the need. That's, that's, I think, as with many politicians, that you know, political survival <clears throat> is, their, is their prime concern. Um, and he was willing to throw four Israelis under the bus uh, in order to uh, give himself some strength, uh, internal strength. There's political survival and then there's physical survival. And unfortunately, these Israeli settlers are, I think, uh, facing a very hard time of it now, especially in the wake of this punishment by the United States. Extrajudicial punishment, let me just say. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more with Itamar Marcus. Stay tuned. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. What will it take for official Washington to realize the Chinese Communist Party is at war with America? Consider a short but illustrative list of what intelligence officers would call clues. 
For starters, the CCP has killed roughly 1.5 million of us to date with biological and chemical weapons, namely COVID-19 and fentanyl. It's in place here at least one covert biolab capable of doing far worse and likely others as well. It's been invading our borders with many divisions worth of unaccompanied fighting-age men believed to be military personnel. Now we learn that China's dictator Xi Jinping is putting its companies under people's armed forces departments, joining the rest of his society already on a war footing. It seems Xi has a pretext for launching his promised offensive against Taiwan. If so, we're on notice. He'll likely act to neutralize us first. This is Frank Afney. We're back, as is Itamar Marcus, our friend and colleague at Palestinian Media Watch. That's palwatch.org. I commend it to you in the strongest terms. Because as the conversation we had in the previous block makes clear, the work that Itamar and his team are doing to expose the actual truth of the kinds of people that Israel is confronting and what that implies, entails, uh, will involve in terms of the options that Israel has going forward, uh, it, it's just impossible to overstate uh, the importance of the documentation of the true intents, aspirations, and for that matter, conduct of these so-called Palestinian moderates of the Palestinian Authority. And Itamar, I know you've been traveling and I don't think you've caught up with this. Um, I, I would like to hear about how your report was received uh, on the Palestinian security services in the UK, but also um, other testimony was given last week uh, here in the United States by a, an undersecretary of state by the name of Bonnie Jenkins. And Bonnie Jenkins um, was pressed by Florida Congressman Brian Nast, excuse me, Brian Mast, um, a man who knows a thing or two about war, having suffered uh, egregiously from his service in uniform, a double amputee, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. And he was just asking her pretty straightforward questions about, so who does the Biden administration believe should run a Palestinian state that the president and his folks insist has to be the outcome of uh, this war in Gaza at the moment, uh, the inevitable so-called two-state solution. Um, she refused to answer the question, period. Wouldn't even answer the question about whether they've been thinking about that question. I, I mean, it was just unbelievable. So tell us a little bit about the UK and then uh, your sense of what the options are here and maybe why Bonnie Jenkins wouldn't address the question Brian Mass put to her. So first of all, I was very satisfied with uh, what happened uh, in British Parliament. I spoke to uh, members of Parliament, members of the House of Lords, uh, to a lot of media as well. Uh, and the, what happened afterward was I was contacted by the what's called the Foreign Affairs Select Committee um, and asked to uh, give a sort of a description if I were invited to the committee uh, that's going to be having hearings on the question of two-state solution, what would I present? Uh, and I gave them an overview, uh, and they're going to get back to me about when I will appear, probably by Zoom or possibly in front of the committee in, in London. So that's very important. In other words, they've recognized that there is a need, uh, that there is a need for this information. Uh, the government there is very naive and is talking about uh, creating a Palestinian state, possibly in, you know, unilaterally recognizing a Palestinian state. I think if we can get the committee to criticize the government, I think that'll be excellent. Well, it would be a breakthrough. Um, what would you tell us about the idea that there are partners for peace here, that there are people within leadership positions in the Palestinian community, uh, Gaza, for that matter, uh, but most especially the West Bank, to whom 
um, a Palestinian state could be turned over with any real prospect that it would live, as they say, side by side in peace with Israel. Well, we, we just have to listen to the words of the Palestinian Authority, especially looking at their children's education. And they have made it very, very clear that they have no desire uh, to live beside Israel with peace. They have told their children, I say they tell their children, we see it in the school books, um, we see it in, in the educational magazine. Um, one of the important education, the, probably the most important educational magazine in the PA is produced by Fatah for its youth. Uh, and they teach them there that uh, Palestine was uh, supposedly, they invent this ancient Palestinian people. They say it was um, invaded by the Rush, uh, I'm sorry, by the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Hittites, the Hebrews, the Persians, and destroyed the ancient Palestinian nation, um, expelled them all. And so too will happen to the Zionist uh, invaders. That's what they're saying. They're going to expel the Zionist invaders and every last Jew will leave, literally. Every last Jew will leave. That's their message to their children. So why would I ever believe what a Palestinian leader tells an American official in Washington when the entire generation of Palestinian children are growing up with the belief that their destiny is to erase Israel from the face of the earth and to expel every single Jew? That's what I believe. Now, the gender, even if the leadership was lying to their children, which I don't believe. I think that's their real, people tell their children they really believe, even if they were lying to their children, a leadership that wanted to live beside in Israel today could never rule these people. Today, polls show that Hamas has 90% support. Why is that? It has 90% of the population supporting them because they're saying openly what the Palestinian Authority has been teaching them as they were growing up for the last 20 years. So you're saying 90% the Palestinian population, not just in Gaza, but in these uh, areas of uh, Judea and Samaria as well? Yes, and it's higher in Judea and Samaria today than it is in Gaza, because in Gaza, the population has suffered so much from the war uh, that many of them have stopped supporting Hamas. Uh, but within the Judea and Samaria, West Bank, uh, they're still supporting Hamas because uh, it's Gaza's problem. And and I might remind the listeners um, that the, the Palestinian Authority uh, pollsters asked Palestinians, um, did what happened on October 7th and the aftermath make you proud? And 98% of the Palestinians said it made them proud. So that kind of a population will not live in peace with Israel, even if there were one day a leader who was going to say, yes, let's live with them, that leader would be removed in a moment. Right. Or, or never get to the position of being a leader, obviously. Um, let me just ask you to sort of frame this um, a little bit differently. I'm curious, based on what you've said, what you know, what you are documenting every day, what the solution is that the two-state solution is trying to solve. Uh, I, I, I just happened, somebody circulated the other day, a wonderful clip by the late Rush Limbaugh. And I don't know its exact date, but it was clearly sometime uh, during one of the interludes in which we were being told that the two-state solution is the response to Hamas violence, I think, probably. Um, isn't it likely, given everything you've said, that the only point of it, the, the solution that the two-state solution would be bringing about is the elimination of the Jewish state? The Palestinian leadership has said that openly. I'll give you, for example, uh, Abbas Zaki, who is a member of the Fatah Central Committee, who's close to Mahmoud Abbas. He sometimes actually speaks in his name at lectures and at presentations. Uh, he has said that we and the president, meaning Abbas, uh, our goal is all of Palestine, means the destruction of Israel. Uh, and then he added that we, our political platform is to talk about the June 1967 borders. And he says, why? Because we all know and everyone knows that Israel can survive those borders. Israel can't survive. And the fact of the matter is Israel can't. And just 
Imagine what happened in Gaza if this were to happen along the entire border of Judea and Samaria, West Bank. We're talking about hundreds of kilometers. It's an area that could never be defended. To say nothing of the plight of people who might actually at least start out living inside that uh, Palestinian state, um, the Jews, I mean. Uh, the bottom line of Rush Limbaugh's piece was the only solution that these guys actually have in mind is the final solution. A throwback, yes. of course, to the Nazis' desire to eliminate the Jews. We have to leave it at that, Edomar. Come back to us soon, if you would, my friend. Keep up the great work you do at palwatch.org. Stay tuned for more, folks. Stay tuned. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back, and a very special welcome to our next guest, a friend of many years, a man who has unfortunately not been with us in altogether too long. We hope in 2024 to remedy that. His name is Colonel Richard Kemp. He's a very distinguished veteran of the British Army. He was a commander of British forces uh, for quite some time in Afghanistan, and he has been Ever since uh, his retirement, uh, one of the most thoughtful, certainly one of the most uh, forthright and articulate analysts on the national security challenges the United Kingdom faces, but I would argue uh, much more broadly, Western civilization is confronting. Uh, and not infrequently, we find him talking about and in fact, in places like Israel. And we're going to continue our discussion about what is happening there with him in this first uh, segment. And I'm very pleased to have you with us, Colonel. Welcome back. It's been far too long. It's a great pleasure to be back with you, Frank. Thank you. Um, we were just talking with Itamar Marcus, uh, Colonel, about um, the unhappy reality that notwithstanding the insistence of our government here in the United States, and I believe your government, that the only possible outcome of this war in Gaza is the creation of a Palestinian state, that there just isn't anybody that you could count on to run and have the popular support needed to uh, maintain a policy of living side by side in peace with Israel. Uh, this is documented by Itamar in his scrupulous reporting on what the Palestinians are actually saying uh, in Arabic to each other and to the world that speaks Arabic. What's your take, uh, especially from your vantage point in Jerusalem at the moment, sir? Well, I think apart from um, the documentation of Itamar Marcus, we've also seen recently um, opinion polls, not just one, but a number of opinion polls in recent months that have made it absolutely clear that the majority of the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria do not want and are not willing to accept any kind of a two-state solution. Um, and, and perhaps even more troubling, or as troubling as that, um, 
for those in particular who are advocates of a two-state solution, uh, there's an overwhelming support for Hamas and approval of Hamas's actions on the 7th of October in Judea and Samaria, not just in Gaza. Um, he he said, that, I think on that last point, 98% yeah. pride in what was done then. Right. Unbelievable. unbelievable. Uh, unless you understand the minds of the people that live there who have, um, over many, many decades, over most of their lifetimes, been indoctrinated with a hatred for Israel and an intention not to live in peace alongside a Jewish state, but to live in the, in, with the annihilation of the Jewish state. They do not want, they don't want a state of Israel. They want their own, they don't even really want, in most cases, they don't care about their own state. They just want rid of Israel. Colonel, I, I have always admired, as I said, your candor and, and your insights uh, on so many of these topics. Um, having served in Afghanistan, uh, among other places around the world, you have had firsthand experience with the phenomenon, I think it's best described as Sharia supremacism. And Sharia, of course, is the Islamic code, as you know, that, well, not only uh, extols jihadism, but commands its adherence to engage in it. And I would just ask you, uh, it, it, it obviously is true that there's been this indoctrination, but is it at the end of the day, the underlying problem that this Sharia supremacism is considered to be God's will, Allah's will uh, in these communities, and therefore it is their duty to act on it uh, violently against uh, its enemies, most especially the Jews? It, it is indeed. It's, uh, you know, the, the indoctrination I was talking about uh, in, includes you know, d direct faithful adherence to the commands of Islam. And one of the reasons why there cannot be a two-state solution is that the Quran, or Islamic doctrine anyway, does not allow any country, any territory, shall we say, to be governed by a non-Islamic authority if it has ever in the past been governed by an Islamic authority. And that is, of course, true of Israel. The, the most recently the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic caliphate, which ruled this territory until the British defeated them in a war in uh, 1918. Um, and, and therefore it cannot be tolerated. It, it, no other authority in this territory can be tolerated apart from an Islamic one. And that's very, very clear in the Quran. And that's why, despite numerous uh, offers by Israel, brokered by the US, etc., uh, and going right the way back, actually, going right the way back to 1937 after the Peel Commission, when uh, a, a kind of two-state solution was offered then, uh, has been rejected every time by their leaders who, who are not willing to go against the, the Islamic doctrine. Yeah. So, Colonel, if, if at the end of all of this, let's just say for the purposes of discussion that uh, Hamas is, um, well, uh, laid low, if not actually completely destroyed. Um, what are the chances that if the outcome is a Palestinian state, that this would be regarded as a vindication of the, you know, Quranic teachings that they will prevail over their enemies and be just a way station towards uh, what Rush Limbaugh has called the final solution uh, not a two-state solution. I, I don't. I don't see how the outcome can be a Palestinian state. Um, it may be what President Biden wants, or it may be what President Biden is saying in order to appease um, the anti-Israel elements of the U.S. electorate. And the same goes for the similar pronouncements in the U.K., which we've heard recently as well. There's got to be a two-state solution. Um, I, I can't see that as being a, even a vague possibility certainly not in the foreseeable future. Um, and, and there are two reasons for that. One, the reason that we've just been discussing, which is that the Palestinian Arab people don't want it and won't have it. And secondly, Israel cannot have it. it we, we tried a two-state solution, and that two-state solution resulted in the situation we've got now. Gaza was effectively an independent state. It was given its autonomy, its independence, and look what happened there. 
why would the same thing not happen in Judea and Samaria if they were given the same degree of autonomy? Therefore, they can't be. Yes, of course, they can have something short of a state. They can have maybe greater autonomy than they have today. I don't know. It's going to be detailed. It's not going to be a massive difference. But the reality is that it, they cannot have the capabilities of threatening Israel. And Israel has to maintain overall security control. That means it's not going to be a sovereign state. And that's all that Israel can tolerate. It can't, particularly after the 7th of October, it couldn't possibly tolerate uh, a, a sovereign, independent Palestinian state uh, in Judea and Samaria or in Gaza. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, honestly, that they can tolerate additional, <clears throat> you know, um, autonomy under these circumstances, given the nature of these folks and the and the clear desire to do more October 7th, if given the opportunity, both in Gaza and I think on the West Bank. Let me ask you quickly, sir, we've got about a minute left uh, too, um, about something that you circulated the other day, which was a statement that uh, I think was appeared in the National Post in Canada, uh, authored by the former prime minister of Canada, uh, and that would be Stephen Harper, to the effect that the only real outcome here, the only legitimate end state is the unconditional surrender of Hamas. And uh, I strongly concur with that. I think you do as well. And yet um, it's generally not even on the table for discussion. Although, interestingly enough, I discovered in a quick duck-duck-go search that um, Tony Blinken, of all people, Joe Biden's Secretary of State, back in, I think it was the 20th of December, essentially said, this war could be over tomorrow if Hamas surrendered. And that should be the option that we pursue. Um, why is it that we're not pursuing it, sir? And what are the implications of trying to believe that we could settle for anything less, or specifically that the Jewish people in Israel could? Well, I, I think the the emphasis of international leaders should be on the unconditional surrender of Hamas and the fellow terrorists inside Gaza and, of course, the release of the hostages. Um, but instead, what we get is we get uh, a draft UN's a US draft of a UN Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire. And that is not calling on Hamas to have a ceasefire, it's calling on Israel to have a ceasefire. Because what, you know, what, what uh, leverage does the UN Security Council have on Hamas? None. It only has leverage on, in relation to Israel. Therefore, it means they're calling on Israel pretty much unilaterally to ceasefire, completely the wrong approach. And, and not only that, but that same Security Council resolution um, suggests that Israel should not fit, should not actually finish off Hamas by going into Rafah. It, it effectively forbids Israel from going into Rafah in the current circumstances uh, because of the fear of large numbers of civilian casualties. And at the same time, it almost excludes, it, it really pretty well does exclude Egypt from opening up its borders so that the uh, some of the civilians there can take refuge in Egypt. It's extraordinary, extraordinary that that should not be a demand of the US and its allies of Egypt to allow uh, Gazan civilians in there. We'd have to take a short break. When we come back, I want to just parse all of that with you a little bit further, and that will be our task on the next block. Stay tuned for that with Colonel Richard Kemp. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The UN Security Council is expected to debate a resolution today offered by Algeria that would demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. 
The Biden administration has signaled it will veto such an initiative. That's the good news. The bad news is that the United States will reportedly offer an alternative, calling for a temporary ceasefire and oppose an Israeli ground offensive against Hamas's last stronghold in Rafah. Like King Solomon's biblical ruling, it would split the difference, but kill the proverbial baby by ensuring Israel's defeat. There is, of course, another option. As former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper recently pointed out, Hamas could surrender. In fact, on December 20th, Secretary of State Tony Blinken actually called for Hamas to do so, observing, quote, this is over tomorrow if Hamas does that, unquote. The U.S. must ensure Hamas surrenders, not Israel. This is Frank After. back and we are visiting with a distinguished veteran of the British Army, Colonel Richard Kemp. He is these days uh, one of the, well, I believe most astute and impactful observers of what is happening in the midst of this war that is now taking place. I believe it's nothing less than the war for Judeo-Christian civilization being fought admirably by the Israelis against um, jihadis, uh, not least uh, the Iranians and their various proxies, including, of course, Hamas. And Colonel, before that break, we were just talking about Rafah. Uh, This is said to be the last bastion of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, They have, as a result of the previous operations, uh, been surrounded by over a million Palestinian human shields. Uh, They're delighted to have them, in fact, rely upon them for their survival. Uh, You were talking a little bit about how the United States is saying, and wants the UN Security Council, no less, to say Israel may not go into Rafah, and that Israel may not get any uh, relief from the challenge of trying to deal with Hamas there by having uh, some of that population, if not a large number of it, moving across the border into maybe a, a strip that seems to be being created by Egypt uh, with a wall on one side and uh, the, the frontier with Gaza on the other. Uh, your thoughts on the military challenge here uh, and the importance of Israel being able to finish the job? Yeah, well, let's go back to that that uh, option of Egypt. Um, and, and actually, the you know, the, the U.S. draft of the U.N. Security Council resolution pretty much excludes any movement of the population from Rafa, um, which is in direct contradiction to the idea that Israel could deal with Hamas without causing large-scale civilian casualties. The two things just don't add up. They don't make sense. There is no other war that I'm aware of, no other war, in which the international community has not called on neighboring countries to open their gates to allow people to take refuge on a temporary basis in safer territory. No other war. And and yet that's happening here. I can understand why Egypt doesn't want Hamas and, and the population of Gaza inside their boundaries. They have enough of a threat from like-minded extremists themselves. So I can understand that. But that doesn't mean to say there shouldn't be international efforts to get them to do it and to take the necessary precautions. It can't, it, it, it simply, it simply does not add up. What it means really, it's inhumane and it's, it's unheard of. And it's, it's, it's kind of another example of the international community using Palestinian civilians as weapons against Israel, trying to get Israel to stop the actions Israel needs to take. And in this case, the, the clear, the clear uh, goal is to stop Israel from finishing off Hamas in Rafah. Hamas sh- uh, Israel should finish off Hamas in Rafah and can finish off Hamas in Rafah, even if the Egyptian border is not open, 
there are other options to try and evacuate some of the civilians, but none of them are as anything like as good as moving them into Egypt. Yeah. But is it your sense as a military man that uh, Israel is going to have to relocate some part of that uh, population if they are to root out from, you know, the hospital complexes and uh, the UNRWA facilities and other places where these guys have been uh, tunneling and hiding and operating from Hamas, that is? Yeah, I think they, they, de they definitely need to do that. It's, it's a very... We don't know how many people are there. Of course, the 1.5 million or whatever the figure is, where do we get that from from Hamas? So we don't know if that's an exaggeration or not. It might be, it might not be, but there's a lot of people there anyway. And, and, the, and, and so, Similarly, we don't know what the casualties that have actually been sustained are other than that uh, unreliable source, right? Absolutely. It's the same source of information. Um, so, uh, yeah, there are places for them to be moved. They need to be moved probably to the coastal area and possibly north to Khan Yunus um, once that's been cleared. So the, the, there are there are possibilities. I, I've, I've watched the IDF in action inside. I've been into, the, into Gaza a number of times since the ground war began, and I've seen them in action. I've seen how careful they are about, first of all, moving people try, or encouraging people to move and then carrying out military operations while even though there are still civilians in the vicinity. And they're very skilled at that. And they're doing everything they can to, to destroy Hamas while minimizing civilian casualties. So your first-hand account is that Israel is not conducting this war with disregard for civilian, civilian casualties, let alone purposefully targeting them. And I guess it follows from that that if they were, presumably there would be vastly larger numbers of casualties than we've seen to date and in large areas of the Gaza Strip, would it not? If, if Israel wanted to do what it's accused of doing, uh, which is carrying out a genocide in Gaza, then that could have occurred on the 8th of October. The, the whole thing could have been dealt with on one, in one day. But of course, that certainly is not what Israel is doing. Um, Israel's doing the opposite of that. Israel is taking every effort to minimize civilian casualties. And their, their, their processes for that are far more effective uh, and far more uh, comprehensive than any other army I've ever known anything about. And I, I attended a, a, an IDF command group meeting of three generals inside the Gaza Strip in El Baraj um, a few weeks back. And they spent an hour discussing forthcoming operations in that vicinity. 20 minutes of that hour was taken discussing how to minimize civilian casualties in an area where there was a Hamas target close to a refugee uh, center, where which was effectively a school, and so that, and, that, and, that and, and you don't help. think that was for your benefit? That was actually <laughs> going through the plan. And and I I ask that, sir, because I, I know you have said in previous conflicts that you have great admiration for the discipline that the Israeli military uh, exercises in this regard, far more than we did, for sure, in places like Fallujah to say nothing of Dresden and, and Tokyo in World War II. No? no, I mean, just to pick up that, uh, I know not very serious comment, that it was very, very for, briefly. for my benefit. I wasn't expected to be there. I walked into this meeting. I was brought in by somebody else, so it wasn't staged or anything like that. And, and, and actually, as for the, um, the, the, the differences between our uh, procedures and the Israelis, the Israelis have far greater ability to deal with civilians and to minimize civilian casualties because it's such a small area on which they've got enormous intelligence. So even if they, you know... Even and it's they... such a priority for them as well. So we have to take a very short break. We'll be right back with more with Colonel Richard Kemp. Stay yeah. tuned. Welcome back. We're having a fascinating conversation with one of the military men I admire most, Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired uh, colonel in the uh, British Army. 
he has been speaking with us about Israel. And you wanted to make a final point, sir, I believe, on this issue of uh, what are reported to be uh, now 30,000 civilians killed, and we're told mostly women and children. Where do those numbers come from, sir, and do you credit them? The numbers come from Hamas, from the Gaza Health Ministry, which is Hamas. Um, they're the numbers they want us to have. Um, we can't rely on them. And of course, they don't break them down into combatants, or, you know, civilians, people killed by their own rockets, which I think at least 13 percent have dropped short inside Gaza, killing quite a few people or people they've deliberately murdered themselves, which is a large number. So the that, let's let's assume that figure is roughly accurate. Let's assume it's 30,000. I don't know. It's probably exaggerated. It may be roughly right. But if we then take from that the IDF's estimate of the number of combatants that they've killed so far in this campaign, which is around, I think, now around 15,000, maybe a bit less than 15,000 killed and probably more seriously injured. But let's look at the, the, the ones killed. That means that the ratio of civilian to combatant deaths is probably... I beg your pardon, it's not, the figure isn't 15,000. The figure's about, uh, I think, uh, eight or 9,000 that, that uh, have been killed by the IDF. Um, but the ratio... But, but is, since they don't wear uniforms, how can you tell whether right. the civilians are the combatants or the civilians are the non-combatants? Not only don't they wear uniforms, but they don't, often don't carry weapons because they know that in pretty much every house inside Gaza, there's a cache of weapons and explosives that they can pick up and get once they've walked along there in civilian clothes with no weapons meaning they're not probably going to be shot by the IDF. Um, but but let's, take, let's take the, the, the rough figures. Um, it, it, it works out that the IDF have probably killed about 1.3 uh, civilians for every combatant killed. 1.3 civilians for every combatant. Sounds like a lot, sounds bad, is bad. But if you then look at the other ratios of other conflicts, the UN estimated a few years ago that that in, conf in urban conflicts around the world, the average number of civilians killed was nine civilians for every combatant killed, nine to one. In Afghanistan and Iraq, think tanks have estimated that US, UK and other allied forces killed about three to five civilians for every combatant. The IDF, it seems, we don't know for sure, has killed about 1.3. It's, it's terrible, but it shows, that ratio shows the IDF is far more successful at minimizing the deaths of innocent civilians than most other armies. And the operative word in what you said, sir, was that we're talking about urban warfare. Not only urban warfare, but arguably the most densely compacted urban warfare that uh, has ever been seen. And uh, the, the, the degree to which these casualties, bad as they are, are as low as they are. Uh, and again, separating out what we're being told by propagandists in Hamas, uh, is an extraordinary testament to, I think, the credit, uh, the, the, the credit that the Israelis deserve for being um, so careful. Sir, I wanted to reserve the last couple of minutes, and we only have a couple uh, with you, to talk about another development closer to your home, and that is uh, the failure now for the second time I gather it's been quite a while, but uh, the second test of a Trident missile from a submarine uh, of the Royal Navy submerged uh, for the purpose of demonstrating that uh, they work. For the second time in a row, they didn't work. Um, what are we to make of that, sir, as best you can tell? And uh, maybe since the Trident submarine, uh, excuse me, the Trident missile is also what we have on our uh ballistic missile submarines, uh, should we be concerned about our deterrent as well? Well, I think we should be concerned, and this is very troubling. And I, I, I don't know, and I, you know, I'm sure it's highly secret what the causes of this failure were, um, but one has to wonder whether it is um, not enough money being spent, um, either on the maintenance of the systems or the, the modernization of the systems or both. Um, and, and we, you know, we, sh we, we, we ought to be, they cost a huge amount of money, these things to, to, to keep in business. But if we're not spending enough money, then we need to spend more because it is the weapon of last resort that we all rely on. And if you're trying to demonstrate a deterrent 
and it doesn't work, then that means that deterrent doesn't really exist. Yes, it does. Uh, you know, in a lifetime ago, I had the privilege of uh, serving President Reagan as an assistant secretary with responsible responsibility in the Pentagon for, uh, among other things, nuclear forces and uh, arms control policy. And at that time, uh, we were in the midst of putting into place <clears throat> most of the weapon systems that we still rely upon today for our deterrent. And I think yours date from roughly that era as well. And what's so worrying to me is not just that the delivery systems, in this case, a very sophisticated piece of equipment, uh, undersea launched ballistic missile, but the nuclear weapons on the front ends might not work as we need them to. We must rely upon them to do for the very reason you've mentioned, Colonel, and that is, of course, deterring adversaries like the Chinese and the Russians and, for that matter, the Iranians and others. So this is a very troubling development. We'll obviously be following closely the after-action reports, such as they are, as to what went wrong here, and especially whether the Trident missiles that the Royal Navy operates um, are pretty much the Trident missile that the U.S. Navy operates, and whether there are problems that now need to be addressed by our forces as well. Colonel, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the chance to visit with you. You have been um, a model of uh, the military officer in your comportment, as well as, of course, your service in uniform, but most especially, I think, the service that you continue to render to all of us with the clear-eyed, honest reporting and analysis that you do, um, most notably in combat situations like the one that you are... Uh, observing very closely there at Gaza. Stay safe, my friend, and please come back to us soon. Uh, in the meantime, I know you'll keep up the very important work you do. God bless you. I hope the rest of you will join us for the next edition of this program. Uh, We're always proud to bring you quality people like Colonel uh, Kemp, and we look forward to doing so again next time. Until then, go forth and multiply. <laughs>